You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Come Home, Full Life in a Whole Church. In this series, we see that those who come to Christ find new life in a new family. We'll learn why the church exists, what it does, and how each of us is a valuable part. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. My name is Jonah, and I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for joining us on this Mother's Day. And again, a very happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. Uh, happy Mother's Day to my mama, who I'm almost certain is watching in Florida right now. I love you. You did a pretty good job, more or less. I'm very thankful for you, and I'm excited to see you soon. And happy Mother's Day to my wife, who deals with a whole lot Uh not the least of which is three little ones at home, but she's also got to deal with me every day. Uh, And she, in all seriousness, she bears quite a burden that not many get to see. And so I love you, baby. Uh, I know she's having a great Mother's Day because I just got a text message from her that our children made her breakfast in bed, our two oldest, which means a six-year-old and a five-year-old made her breakfast in bed. And it was a, a side salad with banana peppers and an entire bottle of Thousand Island dressing. Uh, and they gave her a spoon to eat it with. So, you know, she's living the dream there, <laughs> eating spoonfuls of Thousand Island dressing. So it's going to be a good one at the Sage House today. Uh, happy Mother's Day, and we are grateful for you mothers. I want to start with uh, two questions that are very familiar and normal and incredibly important. Uh, they are, what is it and what does it do? I imagine that one of those you prefer or you're more naturally drawn to, what is it and what does it do? Um, What is it teaches us the truth of something. It defines and explains the nature of a thing to us. And then what does it do teaches us the purpose of something. You cannot use something well without knowing what it does. It's important to know what it is and what it does. So think um, think about a shovel, for instance, for a moment. It's hard, it's metal, maybe I'll use this to hammer nails in my deck. Uh, In theory, I suppose, you could repair a deck with a shovel, but it would be a slow, aggravating process. You put the shovel in the dirt, and that is a marriage of answering both of those questions. What is it? It's a shovel. What does it do? It digs. Uh, to To know the truth of something is also to know the purpose of something. Or maybe to put that another way, to use, to use something in the fullness of what God made it to be, you have to know the truth of it and the purpose of it. As, as is so often the case in Matthew's gospel, which we've been in for about a year now, we receive stories sandwiched together, back-to-back stories where the one will teach us the truth of something, and that leads into the Uh, the purpose of something. Most often, this is centered around Jesus. We learn the truth of who Jesus is, and we're immediately shown what he does, or the truth he brings, and how that shows up in our lives. And sometimes this is explicit in commands of Jesus, and sometimes it's just shown to us in the stories before us. Who Jesus is directly relates to what he does, and what he creates, and what that creation goes on to do. So last week, we learned that the power of the church is the transfigured Christ. We learned the truth that the church has power, and that power is the transfigured Christ, the divine Son of Man, the fulfillment of all God's purposes. 
We're promised a happy ending to our story. He went high on a mountain, which by this time, here we are into chapter 17 of Matthew, that should clue you in. This has happened several times. Jesus goes high on a mountain to provide revelation from God, to show us, to tell us something true about God. This is like he did in the Sermon on the Mount and then the feeding miracles. Now he comes down the mountain to show us what the power of the church does. Last week, we saw what the power of the church is. And now this week, we're shown the purpose of that power, what it does. So in verse 14, we read, at the foot of the mountain, a large crowd was waiting for them. Now, again, if you've been following along with Matthew, this is no surprise. This is the pattern. Jesus goes away, reveals some form of divine truth. And as soon as he comes back down to earth, the crowds are there waiting for him. And so verse 14 continues, a man came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. That's an emotional, intense picture right there that a dad paints for us. Um, I want you to step aside from the dad for a minute and try to imagine what it would be like to be Peter, the apostle, the disciple in this moment. Try to feel the spiritual whiplash Peter must be experiencing in this moment because he was just on top of a mountain with lightning form Jesus. Elijah was there. Moses was there. It, that experience to be Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration had to be one of the most breathtaking overwhelming experiences any human being has ever had. And as far as I know, there wasn't a quick gondola ride down the mountain or they didn't hop on mountain bikes or something. They had to hike down the mountain. How long do you think that took? A couple hours? So Peter gets to have this literal mountaintop spiritual high experience. And then he has a few hours of walking and talking with Jesus. Do you think he asked Jesus questions? I'm Guessing they didn't talk about lunch. Maybe he's asking him stuff like, what's heaven like? Will we glow like you just glowed? Can you show, shoot fireballs too? Why did Moses talk so funny? What did it look like when Elijah was taken up to heaven? Think about the questions. If you had two hours alone with Jesus after he just shone bright like the sun, what would you be asking him? What would you have asked Jesus on the walk down the mountain? I imagine Peter on this spiritual high, he's on fire spiritually as it were. And I imagine they were just about to get to something really juicy. Maybe, maybe Jesus was about to tell, this is how my mind works. Maybe Jesus was about to tell Peter who really built the pyramids. Right? One of the greatest mysteries of all times, Peter asks the right question. Jesus is about to tell him and bam, this man jumps out and says, help, my son is sick. You feel how quickly that changes? You feel the abruptness of this high and lifted up and heavenly spiritual realities that are being considered, and then we, boom, right away, are faced with this horrific brokenness. How would you respond here if you were Peter? Again, imagine how wound up Peter has to feel here. How would you respond to the last thing the dad said if you were Peter? Verse 16, the dad said, 
I brought him, that's my son, to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. So high up on the mountain, Peter is having one of the most spiritually powerful events of all time. And then down in the valley, the rest of the disciples are having a spectacularly pitiful experience. You think Peter was a little frustrated with his guys? Come on, guys. Faced with the incredible glory of Jesus and the astounding failure of the disciples. And this text is so wild, you guys. We could do like four or five sermons on this. Notice how little attention Jesus' miracle gets. In verse 18, this is all we get. Jesus rebuked the demon in the boy and it left him. It's almost an aside. It's almost like Jesus is just saying, oh, be gone. And then he moves right over to talk to the disciples. The brevity, how little attention the miracle gets here. This is Matthew whispering to us, the miracle is not the point of this text. Some people, whole denominations get wound up in dissecting this text as this key to spiritual power. The miracle here is simply window dressing on the larger house of what Jesus and and God are trying to show us. If you put yourself in Peter's shoes, the first thing we feel is this spiritual whiplash. I thought we were talking about heaven, the day of the Lord. Now there's a kid with seizures and failing disciples who are freaking out. There, There is a powerful, important lesson being given to us again here that we've learned multiple times before in Matthew's gospel. Think about, think about the Sermon on the Mount. After giving revelation from God in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus immediately begins healing. He, immediately he comes down the mountain and starts healing people. After being revelation from God himself on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus immediately enters into the mess of concrete human life. In Christ, we're seeing how divine majesty meets human misery over and over and over again. Who is Jesus? He is Messiah. He is God Almighty. He is the Savior of humanity, the hope of the world. That is the truth of who he is. What does he do? He gets his hands dirty with the pain and misery of our human lives. The truth of divine revelation is for the purpose of healing humanity. It's not just abstract concepts launched out across the universe. The truth of divine revelation is for the purpose of healing, restoring God's creation. Jesus is the power of the church. That's what we learned last week. So what is the purpose of that information? What does the church do? The church is to confess that Jesus is Lord and bring his power to bear in the concrete world around us. In other words, we proclaim the divine majesty by entering into human misery. The church proclaims and provides the healing power of Jesus to a hurting world. This is the first lesson of this story. It's screaming at us through the pages of Matthew. Jesus is God in the dirt, divine majesty meeting human misery. And the second lesson here is intended to wipe away all of your fears and insecurities about failing 
as part of this body, the church. So, just try to imagine how wild these few minutes would have been, particularly for Peter, but for all of the disciples. The Mount of Transfiguration, the walk down the mountain, a man with his suffering child, their failures, Jesus almost effortlessly casting out this demon. And later on, the disciples, they basically asked Jesus why their superpowers failed them. Why couldn't we cast out the demon, they asked. Now, there are, there are multiple failures present here. There's a bunch of them. First, do you notice that they're more concerned with their failures than the boys healing? At least it seems they're more interested than their failures than the boy at all. They're more concerned about what's wrong with them than the kingdom of God breaking through. Would you not be the least bit curious about what Peter saw on the mountain? Would you not be the least bit curious about what Peter and Jesus talked about after? But that's not what's recorded for us. They are asking, why couldn't we be the ones who performed the miracle? You see the twinge of wounded pride peeking through? We wanted to be a big deal. We wanted to do the cool thing. This wounded pride peeking through is often what happens with disciples. We see this in churches today too. Why do they get so many baptisms? I wish our church would do it like they do it. So there's much that could be said there, but we have to acknowledge the failure that their eyes are filled more with their failures than they are the beauty of the kingdom of heaven breaking through. The second failure is a little more obvious because it's spelled out for us, the lack of faith. So Jesus answers their question plainly. Why couldn't we do this, Jesus? Verse 20, you don't have enough faith. (laughs) Jesus said to them, that's so good. Uh, Now listen, you guys, this is, in my opinion, the most encouraging rebuke in the whole Bible. Jesus is setting them up for the big lesson of this story. And, you know, I want to I try to encourage some of you who have heard that message, you don't have enough faith and received that as a wound or as a sign of weakness, or that's a burden that you've been carrying for years. Ask for ears to hear what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is subtly telling them, it's not just that they don't have enough faith, it's that they don't really understand what faith is at all. So in verse 20, he said, if you had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. And this is particularly vivid because they're standing at the foot of a mountain, right? It's not an abstract, like, just say a mountain. He's like, you could say to this mountain right here. So a couple of things to pay attention to, to notice in the story. Please notice, he doesn't say, like he's already done a play on words with rock and Rocky and naming Peter, and he's obviously referring to this mountain. And notice that he doesn't say, if you had Rocky Mountain faith, you could say to this mountain, move. 
Or he, he doesn't pick up imagery from Isaiah 61 and said, if you had oak tree faith, you could say to this mountain, get up and move. He doesn't say if you had ocean faith or if you had elephant faith. So in some ways, yes, the quantity of your faith is the problem. But the lesson is you hardly need any quantity of faith at all. That's really the secret of the Christian life. It's not really the quantity of faith that matters. It's the object of your faith. If you, you, you just don't need big faith. If, you, if your faith, whatever you have, is in a big God. If you have a big God, a, a teeny tiny bit of faith will do. In into the disciples' self-absorption and insecurity, Jesus makes this ridiculous, outlandish statement. He's in essence saying, you know, guys, if you only had teeny tiny faith, you know how small a mustard seed is? You're all on the internet right now. Go open up a new tab and Google mustard seed and look at how absurdly small this thing is. He's saying, if you had a wee bit of faith, you could move an entire mountain. And you have to see how ridiculous this is. He's taking something incredibly small, saying it has power over something incredibly large. Listen to the absurdity of this. If you believe that this little tiny mustard seed had that much power, like, would you go and try and move a mountain? Probably not, because who needs a mountain moved? It's a ridiculous example. He's using this going so far over the top, doing something that is so beyond imagining to help them wonder that the next time they were faced with a real need, a hurting person, an impossible situation, they might believe just enough to make a little move. The invitation of the mustard seed is so outlandish, so over the top, that it, it just might make us move even one step. Mustard seed faith, it's, it's a kind of faith that's conscious of its own belief, its own godlessness. It's aware of how small and lacking it is. But that's the true power of the church. We don't see our small faith and try to do some spiritual exercises to drum up more. We're not called to rely on our deep stores of faith or incredible spiritual techniques. We're called to turn our eyes to Jesus and call upon his powerful name. It's the object of our faith, the transfigured Christ, that is the power of the church. And it is his power that we rely on. So try to bring it to bear in your own life for a minute. If you had just a tiny bit of faith, but you believed that that tiny bit of faith had the power to move a mountain, what would you do? I'm guessing you wouldn't go to Lewis and Clark State Park and try to reroute the Ohio River, do something grandiose and huge. I bet you would do something like call your sister and say you're sorry. I bet you would talk to your neighbor across your fence, even though you're tired and agitated. I bet you would own that sin to your spouse. Maybe if you, if you believed a mustard seed was all you needed, maybe you would be honest with your grief and you would mourn deeply today. Jesus gives us such a wild example that all of our insecurities or thoughts that we don't have what it takes would just be wiped away. The church 
proclaims and provides Jesus's healing power to the world. The invitation of the mustard seed is trying to compel you to take one step in that direction. So we began with two questions and I want to end with two questions. And we've already touched on the first one. If you had mustard seed faith, what would you do? Maybe let your imagination wander. If you had mustard seed faith, what would you do? If that's, if that's really all it took to unleash the divine majesty's power into a hurting world, what would you do? It could be something, it could be something very small. Maybe you'll stay home a little bit longer even though you're restless and bored. Maybe you would start praying for that friend again. Maybe it's something larger like a career change or reconciling a broken relationship. If you believed you only need a little bit of faith to unleash God's power in the world, what would you do? And listen, Mother's Day is a strange day. It's a day filled with conflicting emotions. And the older you get, the more contradictory feelings can be stirred up on this day. And in our culture, the power of God is often equated into something large and flashy and noticeable. But sometimes the power of God is simply the power to hold on through a life filled with impossible situations like many of us are facing now. Sometimes it's, it's simply the power to cling to a shred of hope that one day all of our tears will be wiped away and we will enter into life eternal. It could just be the power to get through another day tenderhearted and open to others. If you had mustard seed faith, what would you do? Now, the reason that we need a second question at all is because of what will happen if you choose to answer the first. So often, when you start to move in the life of faith, adversity and accusation will come. It's one of the most consistent patterns I've ever seen in the Christian life. If you try to take a step of faith and move in a way that you sense God is leading you, it will often get more difficult. Satan, that old snake, will whisper in your ear, that's crazy. That's impossible. That's a waste. You don't have this and you're not enough that the voice of accusation will come to try and convince you to stay on the couch of your life. Spiritual forces are very interested in keeping you bored, discouraged, and on the sidelines of the kingdom of God. So should you choose to answer that question, what would you do if you had a mustard seed of faith? Be prepared to answer the second question when those accusations come. And the second question is simply this, is Jesus risen? Is the tomb empty? Is he alive? If the answer to that question is still yes, which it always is, then you can look the accusation right in the face and say, you may be right, it may look impossible. I am probably that. 
I don't have enough of that. But Christ is risen. Christ is Lord. And Christ is with me. What I have, I will give to him. I don't have much. I need him so much. And so what I do have, I will enlist into his service. You have all you need, church, to proclaim and provide the healing power of Jesus into this world. And communion is our weekly reminder that this is true. We take something so ordinary, so everyday, and this is an invitation to experience the divine mystery himself. So we remember the night Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread. He broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this in remembrance of me. To you who've been crushed by the message that you don't have enough faith, hear this again. It is the blood of Christ that seals your relationship with God. It is not your great faith. Oh, you just need a little bit. You just need a little bit of faith. So listen, what is true? Jesus is risen and he is with you. So what will you do? What will that truth do through you? If you had a mustard seed of faith, what would you do? I'll pray for us and then wherever you are, whatever you have, remember the body of Christ given for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. And as a sweet reminder that we're still together, we are, we are isolated, but we are not alone. I encourage you to take a picture of whoever you're with and let's fill our Facebook feeds with that or Twitter feeds, whatever you do. We're using the hashtag, he is risen because we're in the season of Easter. And that is, that is the question that we answer when the temptation comes, when the doubt comes, Jesus is still risen. And so the power of the church is still active in and through his people. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series, audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.